0: This
1: is The Guardian. Hey, it's Laura Murphy-Oates. Just a quick note before we start. If you are a regular listener to Full Story, even if you're a new listener, I've got a favour to ask. I want to know what you think about the show, whether there's topics that you would like us to cover more or just something you think that we can improve. Your feedback could help us make an even better show. If you've got a few minutes to spare to answer some questions, go to theguardian.com forward slash podcast survey to find out more. That's theguardian.com forward slash podcast survey. Okay, thanks. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is The Full Story. The deep sea is one of the most underexplored regions of the world. And according to Guardian Australia's Pacific editor, Kate Lyons, it's home to an array of fantastical and unusual creatures. One of my
2: favourites is called the yeti crab. And so it's like a crab (laughs) with silky blonde bristles and it looks like the abominable snowman. (laughs) Or there's like another one that's really cool. It's called the ossidax, which is a bright red bone-eating worm and it lives
1: on the bones of dead whales. I mean, just wild, right? This place is also home to rich minerals that are highly prized and some see the deep sea as the new frontier of mining. Right now, the world may be on the verge of a type of deep sea gold rush and that's because of a recent move by the tiny Pacific nation of Nauru. So, What could this new frontier of mining look like? And how will deep-sea mining affect the fragile ecosystems under the water and the lives of those who live on its shores? Today, the race to protect the deep sea. It's Thursday, the 26th of May. Okay, so let's get going. Galo, um, can you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your reporting as well?
3: Hi, my name is Galo Laine I'm based in Papua New Guinea and uh, I do a bit of freelance reporting for The the Guardian on things from COVID and the health system, on the rising of sea levels. And tell me about Cono and your trip there. I went to Kono last year um, as part of a reporting assignment for The Guardian. Mm. Cornell Village is quite a long drive from Kewiang, which is the main port where you fly into. It takes about four hours to get there. Uh, once you turn off the main highway, you're on a pretty small and bumpy road um, going across small rivers. Mm. Um, but once you arrive into uh, Kono Village, it has, uh, you know, your typical beautiful palm trees and um, little little homes made with bush materials and uh yeah, it's just, it's a small, quiet, pretty little place just set on the back of beautiful
1: open sea. Hmm. So, Gallo, you were there for a shark calling festival. What is shark calling?
3: So, yes, yeah, shark calling is an ancient practice um, that is very specific to the west coast of New Island. And so they have their canoes. They have a big club, which are, is used to... Um, hit the animal once it's caught.
0: Okay, my name is uh, Godfrey Jordan Abage, and I come from Kono Village.
3: Godfrey Abage is from Kono um, Village uh, where he grew up and we had a little bit of a discussion about shark calling.
0: First time you're out there catching shark, you will forget about finding yourself in trouble. Because every time you'll be looking out to the sea, you have to, you have to find yourself somewhere there.
3: They include a lot of singing in in this ritual, um, chanting and singing. They have some secret chants, which they do out on the ocean, but they also have some songs that involves the community and women will stand on the beach and sing and it'll become like this connection between the shark caller and the community.
0: What happens is when they're chanting, when they're praying, some of our ancestors, their names are being included in the prayers praying for them to prepare the shark, prepare the ocean. You can see women crying. You can feel this vibration.
3: Once they finished um, the rituals on shore, the, the shark callers get into their canoes and they disappear over the horizon, literally, these little black dots. And while they're out there, I'm told, they, they do more chanting and singing, and they use the larung, or the coconut shell tool, um, they shake it above the water or just yeah, just on the, the surface of the water and it creates a sound, vibrations. That's one of the things that helps attract the shark to get come closer to the canoe.
0: The shark is a clever animal. The shark knows you and he won't give himself to you.
3: And then very quickly they grab the shark, give it a quick bang over the head and pull it into the canoe. They also actually have a conch shell which they blow, and everybody um, comes down to the beach and and you know to prepare to to welcome them in um, with song, and uh, yeah, the shark caller will get out with the shark, and that's all they take. They take one shark, and from that point is when the shark is um, shared amongst the community. Mm.
1: So what is the controversy right now around shark calling? It is getting a little bit harder for the the locals to be
3: able to uh, catch as many sharks as they normally would have. One story Mm. that I heard was that um, as part of a festival demonstration for shark calling where they normally would send out, or where they did send out, you know, about 20 canoes, they would expect everybody to come back with a shark and they only returned with two for the shark callers, it it was a, an almost unbelievable moment on, and a very sad moment to sort of recognise that something is changing. I spoke to some of the elders and the master shark callers and they do say that some of the reasons uh, impacting their inability to um, bring sharks home are from outside things uh, such as deep sea mining. Of Papua New Guinea, preparations are underway for the world's first deep ocean mine. Rocks found on the ocean floor are exceptionally rich in copper and gold, could be worth billions of pounds. But scientists are warning that the mining mining of the rock will devastate marine life.
2: So, deep sea mining is kind of what it says on the tin. Um, it's mining for precious metals in the deep sea, on the the seabed, thousands of metres below the surface of the water. Kate Lyons is Guardian Australia's Pacific Editor. And the ocean floor, the seabed, actually holds incredible riches. There Hmm. are precious minerals, the usual things like gold and copper, but there's also um, nickel and manganese and cobalt, um, which are important because they're materials that are used in things like electric vehicle um, and grid storage batteries. And then you have really like precious rare minerals like um, tellurium which is used in solar cells so yeah there's there's all sorts of stuff down there and there's incredibly diverse ecosystems and environments so I don't know what you picture when you think about the the bottom of the ocean but I Mm. suppose what I pictured was that it was all the same that it was sort of this big flat abyss like a, a sand desert but actually no like the surface of the earth it's varied so you have things like sea mounts like mountains under the sea Of which I love I love sea mounts because um when schools of fish or other creatures migrate across the surface of the planet they use them as markers to know where they're going and they even have rests on them that's where they like take a little break fish naps I know I love it um and then you have things like hydrothermal vents which um sort of you know, like big chimneys that spew extremely hot, highly acidic um, water out. Um, And it's believed by some to be the place where all life on Earth started. Um, And those vents are actually incredibly rich in in minerals. That's one of the places people want to
1: mine. How do people get their hands on it? How does this mining actually work?
2: So a lot of what we're talking about is either on hydrothermal vents Or it's on abyssal plains, which is sort of like flat expanse of sort of sand. Mm. And for abyssal plains, what is being mined there, it's called polymetallic nodules. And they basically, they kind of just look like potatoes that litter the surface of the seafloor. The polymetallic nodules, they think that they take up to sort of three million years to form. They form at the rate of sort of a couple of centimetres every million years, which is wild. I mean, it is the very definition of a non-renewable resource. Um, And the vision for mining these polymetallic nodules is that a ship would head out into the middle of the ocean. They would drop um, from the ship these enormous machines. We're talking like bulldozer size kind of things to the seafloor. And that's 3,000, 4,000 meters below pitch black you know can't see anything and it gets there and mm. it sends out little um sort of rover vacuums that suck up these m- nodules and then they have to send the nodules 4000 meters back to the surface in these what they're called risers so basically vacuum tubes that go from the machines on the seafloor up to the surface um, and then they go on the ship, <laughs> like it's it's full on. It's a new frontier of the way, you know,
1: mining could happen. Right. So it's this new frontier that we haven't quite figured out yet. What has happened so far, specifically in Papua New Guinea?
2: Papua New Guinea is really interesting because it's a place where mining was going to happen. Um, and there's a sort of division in the ocean that's helpful to understand, which is that the waters around the country are owned by that country. So they're mm-hmm. territorial waters and mining can happen there already. It's up to the discretion of the country if they want deep sea mining to happen within their own territorial waters. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened in PNG. The Papua New Guinea government partnered with a company called Nautilus for a deep sea mining project called Solwara One. And one of the investors in Nautilus was a businessman called Jared Barron, who has gone on to be a really massive player in the deep mm. sea mining industry. Uh, Nautilus had machines out. They had started the exploration. But the area was very, very close to land. It was only about 30 kilometres from some of the coastal communities in New Ireland, which is where Carlo was doing her reporting from. Mm. The Papua New Guinea government invested about 150 million Australian dollars in the project which is a huge amount for that country. Um, And they did testing, um, they did exploration. Mining never started properly. Mm. And then Nautilus went bankrupt and the project folded. Um, And it is worth saying that Gerard Barron had sold his stake in the company well before it went bust. But the whole thing left the PNG government with an enormous amount of debt. It was, it was about $157 million Australian dollars out of pocket, which is about a third of their annual health budget.
1: Right. So why are communities still concerned about deep sea mining in PNG if this went bust and the project didn't go ahead? So while the
2: project went bust, the license for the project wasn't revoked. So in theory, it could start up mm. again. And while the Papua New Guinea deep sea mining project has paused, there are plenty of others who would love to get started on deep sea mining projects. And it's got a lot of people really concerned, including Godfrey Abagé from Kono Village.
0: We are not really sure of how they are mining the seabed and we are really in confusion. We are really in fear of This project?
2: Yeah, a lot of Pacific countries are really worried about deep sea mining happening. And that's particularly because Pacific countries are ocean countries. You know, they often talk about themselves as the blue continent and seeing themselves united by ocean, that ocean is so important to culture and to livelihood as well. So the idea of disrupting the Pacific Ocean with a huge mining operation is very frightening for them. Um, And countries like Fiji and Vanuatu have called for a moratorium on deep-sea mining until more is known about the potential Mm. impacts. For most of these countries, tourism and fishing are the key uh, industries. And in PNG, which is a country that produces one-sixth of the world's tuna supply, any impact on the ocean is going to have a major impact on people's
0: livelihoods. People don't have the, the money to probably get a good protein in the shop. So most of our mothers and sisters, they they go fishing. This culture is provided for the household. So I think my my biggest fear is uh, there will be no more fish and it, it can affect people here.
1: Right, so locals in Papua New Guinea and the Pacific are worried about deep sea mining, driving away the fish and the sharks that they survive on. Does that line up with the science, though? Do we know what impacts this mining can have on the environment around it?
2: So companies that want to do mining have been doing environmental studies and there are environmental groups and legal groups that have been doing studies um, about the impact mining could have. Mm -hmm. And they argue there are potentially enormous ramifications for ecosystems in in the ocean at all levels, but particularly at the deep sea. Mm. So we're talking about things like um, noise pollution is a really big one. These are huge machines rolling along the surface of the seafloor. And because it's so dark down there, actually, the belief is that noise is incredibly important for those creatures to communicate. Um, Mm. They do it by sound rather than sight or to hear food, you know, the bones of the dead whale falling to the seafloor. So if you're going to have huge bulldozers operating 24-7 rolling around the sea floor, that's going to have an impact.
1: Yeah, it's like a bulldozer in a bat cave.
2: That's a really nice way of putting it. Exactly. Mm. Um, And then added to this, the machines pump back into the ocean all the stuff that they've sucked up that they don't want, creating these huge sediment plumes. Um, And the fear is that these plumes could sort of float through the ocean at the level where a lot of the fish we eat live. Um, And it's sediment that could disrupt light, that could affect the creature's that could affect them in all sorts of ways we don't
1: know. Mm. Kind of like an underwater dust storm, I suppose. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. And and then there's the potential impact that disturbing the ocean in this way could have on worsening the climate crisis. Mm. So estimates suggest that around a quarter of the world's CO2 emissions generated by human activity is absorbed by the oceans. The oceans suck that up and handle it in the same way that, you know, trees sequester carbon And so disturbing the ocean in this potentially massive way, that could disrupt the the way that the oceans um, sequester carbon. It's worth saying that the companies that are pushing for deep sea mining, they dispute this. They say that the environmental impact is going to be far less than the environmentalists are warning. Mm. Um, Some of them are actually trying to make a green argument for it, which is that we need the resources that are available in minerals that are found on the seafloor to produce things like electric vehicles and storage for solar cells. And so if we want to transition to a net zero economy, we're going to need more of these minerals. They're found on the seafloor and that's where we should be getting them from. They also argue that terrestrial mining, so mining on land, already has an enormous impact on in human communities and on the environment, and that it's better to do the mining on the seafloor than it is to do it on land. And they also say that once they've gathered enough of the resources from the seabed to build a sustainable green industry, they'll stop mining.
1: So it sounds like the pros and cons of this type of mining are contested. Do we just not know enough at the moment, Kate? Okay.
2: So we know some, but not a lot, Mm. um, which is the main problem, is we don't know what we don't know. Last year, 350 marine scientists from 44 countries signed a statement calling for a pause on deep sea mining operations until more information about its impact could be uncovered. Mm. Um, And, I mean, one of the reasons we know so little about the impact that deep sea mining could have is because we know so little about the deep sea itself. It's believed we know more about space, outer space, than we do about the deep sea. Mm. I mean, to give you a sense of it, only 0.0001% of the deep sea floor has been investigated.
1: Next. The two year countdown until deep sea mining in international waters takes off. So, Kate, deep sea mining is on pause in Papua New Guinea, but what about the rest of the world? What's the state of deep sea mining there?
2: So, right now, there's just over a year before deep sea mining could essentially kick off worldwide in a really big way. Um, And it all has to do with international waters, which lie beyond the territorial boundaries owned by a particular country. Um, And so international waters, they sort of like belong to everybody and they belong to nobody. And to understand what started the clock ticking, you have to understand a little bit about the attempts there are to regulate these waters. Um, And so they're regulated by a UN body called the International Seabed Authority, or the ISA. And the ISA's job is to do two things. One is to come up with a framework for and regulate mining activities on the seafloor. And the other is to protect the seabed environment, which some think are maybe contradictory aims, but those are the two goals of the ISA. Mm. So At the moment, there can be no mining in international waters. What can happen is exploration of international waters for the potential of deep sea mining. So that's things like testing your equipment or doing environmental impact studies, but Mm. not to do commercial mining. So that doesn't happen at the moment. Mm -hmm. In order to do that mining, Countries or companies partnering with countries have to get a license from the ISA and they get sort of designated a little square of ocean that is theirs to do exploration in and then maybe one day to do commercial mining in. And there have been about 30 of these licenses that have been issued already. So China, UK, Germany, Belgium, Russia have got them, but also tiny little Pacific countries. So Nauru, Tonga, Kiribati, and Cook Islands have partnered with companies in order to get licenses to do mining. And mm. the, the reason they partner with the companies is because there's this sort of fairness provision in the rules that say, look, Cook Islands is way too small to have the money to get a license on its own and do all this on its own. But it, if it sponsors a company, then they can work together to do that mining. So it, it's meant to be about fairness and, and equity for small nations to participate in this particular potential industry.
1: Right, so specifically small nations can partner with these companies to get these licenses and that's supposed to give them more of an even footing, is that what you're saying? Yeah, Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um,
2: And so at the moment, the ISA is debating regulations to allow deep sea mining to happen. Um, So they're coming up with the rules, basically. Where can you mine? How much can you mine? What happens if damage is done during mining and there's transboundary harm? Who pays for that? Who cleans it up? That kind of stuff is all being debated at the moment. Mm. And the ISA, it's kind of in their interests um, to grant these exploration licences, they get a a processing fee of half a million dollars for every licence that they process. And to date, they have a 100% grant rate for the applications that come their way. And there have been some pretty strong criticisms of the ISA that while their job is to safeguard the seabed, they're more interested in getting mining started. Um, And now the ISA has responded to these claims saying that they follow a rigorous
1: application process. So, Kate, you mentioned that there is currently a countdown for mining in these international waters to kick off. What set this off?
2: So there's a clause within the ISA's um, laws that says that if a country invokes what's called the two-year rule, then mining has to begin within two years, sort of regardless of where the ISA is up to in developing its regulations and its framework agreement. Mm. So it's sort of like ready or not, deep sea mining, here it comes. Um, And so Nauru has partnered with the Metals Company, incidentally, whose chairman is Gerard Barron, the Australian businessman who was an investor in Nautilus when it reached the agreement with the Papua New Guinean government. And they've got an exploration licence for an area of international waters. Mm. And the Nauru... TMC Alliance is just about the most aggressive um, proponents of getting deep sea mining started of, of mm. anyone in the world. Um, and last year, Nauru invoked the two-year rule. They sent a letter to the ISA announcing that they wanted mining to begin within two years, which effectively put the ISA on notice and said you have two years to sort out your rules and regulations and then mining begins under whatever rules and regulations the ISA has decided on at that point point. Um, and it's not just Nauru that can start mining at that point it's any country with an exploration license and so even some countries that are very keen on deep sea mining that have done a lot of work to get ready for deep sea mining don't like what Nauru did because they feel like they're not ready mm. um, so there are a lot of people who are really not happy with Nauru for doing this.
1: So essentially that clock has already been ticking for about a year now and there could be just a year left before deep-sea mining kicks off in a big way around the world. Is that right? Yeah, that's right.
2: I know I'm mixing my metaphors here, but it really put a gun to the head of the ISA to say you have to come up with a framework or we'll start mining. And, and this is as well, you know, the ISA is made up of you know, 160-odd member countries, many of whom don't want deep-sea mining to happen at all. Mm. Not just don't start in 18 months, but don't start ever or don't start for 20 years or don't start till we know exactly what we're doing. Mm.
1: I imagine environmentalists and some Pacific Island countries would really like to see proper regulation going forward. So what could we see in the next year as this clock is ticking down?
2: Yeah, so there's one legal expert I chatted to said that the clause of the two-year rule is so terribly worded that it's actually really unclear what happens in two years. Uh, You know, there's a sub-body of the ISA have to approve the rules. Does the whole member group have to vote on it and approve it by a supermajority, by a majority? It's like it's unclear. And Mm. so there's a big question mark over whether actually this two-year rule can be legally binding at all. But I suppose for a lot of member countries, the the clock is ticking. They have to get regulations and frameworks in place to make sure it's as safe and as fair as possible if this industry is
1: going to start. Mm. It does kind of feel surreal that in a climate crisis, just a year from now, we could see a whole new mining industry take off where the environmental impacts are so unknown. Are people listening to the warnings here?
2: Well, I mean, we know people are trying. Uh, We mentioned earlier in the episode that, you know, 350 scientists call for a moratorium. We have countries calling for moratorium. We have David Attenborough speaking out. There there are people who are really lobbying on this. But, I mean, as with anything where there's a lot of money involved, a lot of big industry involved, um, I think we should be really watchful of this industry. It's something that could... Massively, massively disrupt the planet, the environment, you know, the climate, the small island states and their well being, and could slip by largely unnoticed.
0: We are not really sure of how they are mining the seabed, and we believe if this goes on, it will affect us.
2: When you bring it back to Papua New Guinea, I mean, you have the village of Kono um, where the people's lives so dependent on the ocean, and they're still living with uncertainty about whether this project might restart and disrupt their lives all over again.
0: We are born into this culture, and spiritually, we have this connection. You wake up by the shore, you listen to the waves, you can feel the waves, you get peace, you see the ocean, It is something that's really connected with our spirit.
1: That was Kate Lyons, Pacific Editor at Guardian Australia and reporter Galalena Fainu. You can read Galo's reporting on the ground in Papua New Guinea, plus a whole series on who profits from the mass extraction of the Pacific region's natural resources called Pacific Plunder, at theguardian.com We put some links to that on the Full Story page as well This episode was produced by Kate Lyons and Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Mofiotes Okay, catch you tomorrow